SheQuest Podcast is the home of heart-opening dialogues, stories, and experiences for self-identified women on SheQuest. Season 5 is now bilingual as I welcome co-host Nadia Bonafa. Hey, Nadia! <laughs> hey, Estelle! Delighted to be part of SheQuest Podcast Forward Movement to Live Aware, Bold, and Whole. Let's do this! Woohoo! Hi everyone, this is Sheik West Podcast and Kate Inglis is gracing us for a third time because she's so epic. <laughs> uh, this is part three of conversations on grief, really, you know, sprinkle with our experiences and reflections of, yeah, what it's like to live like with grief warm <laughs> to keep grief you know warm if you didn't know already because I, I I just keep plugging your book but I, I I really want everyone to go get a field guide to grief notes uh, for the ever lost by Kate Inglis which in part one and part two I I refer to it a lot your book has been such a game changer for me and I just I really really value your time here with us thanks Kate for being here again it's such a delight it's lovely talking to you. Oh, well, it's uh, reciprocated. <laughs> so let's just recap, I guess, you know, part one really was, I felt like the onset, we talk about trauma and shock. I, I love that conversation, the part one really on mm-hmm. shock and, and what it does to our bodies, um, you know, a lot. And then our part two was about triggers, which uh, just such a rich and We've been using that word nuance, but such a beautiful mm. rich and nuanced conversation that I love the places it went with kind of sharing our work and words online. And uh, and and today it's kind of going this way where I think I want, like, this is why this podcast is why I wanted you here. A big part of, like, my mission really has been, like, educating all this to say, you know, I wanted you here. I want to talk about grief and creativity and just the, the, for, I think for us, and don't put words in my mouth, Kate, but I think it's really been a necessity, not only because like we're both inclined and I think that's a bit of the, for me anyways, the misunderstanding, like I just cringe so much when people come to me and they're like, I don't have a like creative bone in me or <laughs> mm. like, I don't have, and I just... I just feel so like sad, you know, by that. I mean, it did take me kind of years to kind of get where where I am. And I think it can also like you're a novel, you know, you're an author and like I'm a painter and we're both established in our in our careers. Like we're doing this professionally. And I think like it can the line can be blurred between, you know, nurturing your creativity in, in solitude. And do you, do you know what I mean? Like that, that line where it's like, people get confused, like, oh, well, like she sells her art and then, and then creativity helps. Like what? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyways, I'm, I'm taking on a lot of tangent, but I want to talk, you know, in relation to grief. And on that note, Mm. you know what I'm going to ask you, what makes you feel alive today? Uh, I always, I always give some cantankerous answer to that. I think what makes me feel alive today is physical pleasure because yesterday we escaped the stress of this lockdown in the woods. We went to uh, sort of an, an outdoor bike park with the kids 
and we went to a waterfall, got my feet in the water, and just went for a really lovely brisk walk um, with the birds and the sunshine. And when you're in lockdown, but you can at least still do that, a retreat to the wilderness, you can pretend out there that there's no, that nothing is amiss because nature never changes in that way. It will always feed you beauty and it will always feed you a fresh set of air in your lungs. And that is never, ever a bad thing or never not a good thing. It will always replenish you somehow, even if you feel like you're beyond replenishment, you know? Um, and so, so I'm really kind of just happy about that and, and really determined to kind of get outside of, you know, I, I have very, very sloth-like instincts, <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't help that I, you know, I, I do tend to get kind of lethargic. I, I live on my computer because I'm writing all the time. And I'm not naturally athletic at all. I can go like months without moving. <laughs> and so it doesn't, it's not like it comes naturally to me to be like, all right, let's pack up the family and get outside and go and have a little, you know, get my heart, heart rate up. But I'm always so glad when I do and that I've found a few things that, that do kind of feel like my things, like having bought a road bike and cycling or going for a hike uh, with the boys. And that's what makes me feel alive today is just connecting with your physical body. And I know that you are, you are the, the reigning queen of this gospel for sure. <laughs> but I love, you know, I love that you say that it doesn't come naturally because I, I don't think like it goes, it comes naturally to a lot of people. <laughs> mm, and yeah. Like, I feel like I grew up with a dad that was always like, like taking me everywhere and just this and that. And I, I, I do feel like it's almost an instinct for me to like exercise and mm -hmm. like move my body. And, and in that way, yeah, it's never like a choice almost for me. <laughs> More. Sure. Yeah. And, but I love, but I don't think it's like everyone you know, everyone's cup of tea. I love talking about these extremes where like, you know, sometimes you won't move your body for like, a, like months. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's like really natural. <laughs> yeah, I know, especially for some of us, but I, I do feel like as someone who's very sort of non-athletic, I mean, I say that, but then I do lots of things, you know, I ski in the winter and I, I, I ride in the, in the off season. But, but I think it, my mom used to work at Woozles. She worked at, which is Canada's oldest children's bookstore. And she worked there for, I think, 15 years or so. And she always used to say, there's no such thing as a kid who isn't into reading. Mm -hmm. It's just that that kid hasn't found their books yet. Mm -hmm. and, and that's true for adults as well. And I think that's also a good metaphor for you know, straining your lungs a little, like getting to the point where you're like, like you're, you're actually kind of starting to get your heart rate up and break into a bit of a sweat. It's like, no, very few of us want to like throw a medicine ball back and forth. Very few of us are CrossFit maniacs, you know, but it could be that you just haven't found your physical channel yet. You haven't figured out that actually you are a swimmer. 
you just don't know it yet, you know? So I think we all have to just keep trying to find our, our physical song, you know? And some of us, I think, just haven't found it yet. And we have to find that groove and that flow and that rhythm, even if it's just walking in the woods. You know, there are some people that just really never think of going into the woods. And even that, I mean, almost anyone can do that, you know, as long as you've got two functioning legs and, uh, yeah, but it does, it does take, there's sort of a practice that for some of us, it's not as close to the surface to find that thing that, that, that changes the air in your lungs, you know, and, and I think it, it is a practice to keep some degree of optimism, it, to, to knock it down on yourself, but to say, I just haven't found my, 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 my channel yet physically. And to stay kind of curious too, like, like I, I try to change it up a lot. Sometimes I feel I'm like some, um, someone came on the show once and they, they, she said, I love that so much. She said she was a creative ritualist. <laughs> and, oh, that's a neat word. Yeah. And I love that because like, I really feel like, every day I kind of ask my body what it needs. Like I used to have like a schedule and like, and really since my son passed away, it's so much more fluid than that. And we've used that word, I think primal too. like, no, but what does my body need like today? And so the rituals that you do become so much more creative like not because you've been running for the past 20 days like oh like today I need to go running you know like instead it's like oh like maybe I need to plunge myself in cold water today or like I don't know and like I so I love that idea of like like seasons and cycles with what you need like physically Mm -hmm. I mean lately like nature and I think that's one of the things that like lockdown or not like you know, yesterday, my son and I, we just walked down our street and there's the freaking Atlantic Ocean, like mm-hmm. right at our feet. And, oh, they said, government say to stay in your community. Like, oh my God, like this is my community. Like, you know, it's like yeah. a freaking ocean. And yeah. So tell us about, I'm going to pull, like I usually do, um, there's a line in your book because I want to revert back to kind of creativity, but. Um, right, right. Right. <laughs> But but I, I do think there's actually really strong links between oh, yeah. sort of a yin and yang of being in your body, figuring out how to be in your body, giving your body a channel, giving your body some 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 uh, time and attention, and then being internal. So then being in your heart and in your mind and finding the right channel in that way. And I think if you are letting one side fall down, and if you're if you're no longer searching for the yin, for, to find your right yin in terms of your body, then your yang isn't going to be balanced and functioning very well either. So there's the transition. <laughs> there's the there's the segue. Yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent. And like, I feel now, every time I'm about to do something creative, like, I need to take it like a brand, like I need to pause before I do anything. Like I can't do it scattered. Like I, I've tried, but um, like usually I see that link between like being in your body and like tapping into that source, like when you're fully present, like that dialogue with the muse or whatever you call her, you call it, or yeah. even if you have one, I'm not sure, but like 
you know, that dialogue back and forth to be as clear, like the conduit. I don't know if you, you think I'm talking woohoo here, but like, <laughs> but like the clearer conduit, like I, like, I feel I'm so in tune with that. Like whenever I feel funky, like I'll just, you know, I'll do my yoga practice. I'll do my rituals. And then, you know, I sit down and do, you know, the work. <laughs> One of the first workshops I led actually was like the relationship between yoga and creativity. Mm. And that was like, oh my God, that was like a decade ago. And like to realize that really like your breath, like breathing is a creative act. Mm. You know, like the inhale and the exile like is a creative act. And I remember being like, oh my God, if you're, like if you study breath for like a second, you would like know you're a creative person. You know? <laughs> like yes. you're living, living, breathing, like inspiration. Like you're literally like inspire, like in, inhaling and exhaling your life. Like I just love to see it like that. Yeah. Well, we we give so much attention to our to our heart and our brain. We never really think about our lungs, and I think I think it's through the lungs that we connect with all the sort of um, all the meat suit parts of our body, you know, all of the other sort of um, what we think of inanimate or machine like parts of our body that we don't really speak to quote unquote, we don't really sort of anthropomorph. I'm not going to get that word right. I never can. We're not going to sort of assign personality to anything or, or, or a sense of conversation and dialogue with anything other than the heart and the mind. But we don't think about, I think it's the lungs is kind of the third leg of that stool in terms of connecting us to all the, the quiet sort of silent players within our body that, um, that need care too. Anyway, I keep getting you off, off track. You were looking in the book, no, I think. No, I love this lung thing because uh, I had a yeah. teacher, she would say, your lungs are the wings of your heart. Mm. So I do want to... I'm going to read a line of your book that I always say that like, that was my favorite passage, but they're pretty much all favorite. And it says, um, when you said, I appreciate how art rearranges the impossible into a shape we can absorb. Uh, Yeah. Well, early on you, in our, in our chat today, you were talking about the sort of tragedy of people who would say, I don't have a creative bone in my body. And I was sort of thinking about that because I know people who would say the same thing. But I think the problem is that we need to first define our terms. So when we say creative, what, what do we mean by that? Because I think everyone has creativity. That's a fundamental sort of uh, spectrum of human expression and, and how we build our expression. But it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, painter, writer, singer, uh, you know, sketch artist, it, 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 quilter. Um, it can be creativity can manifest in so many different ways. And I think some people do have brains uh, that are just not, that just don't lean to creative expression as the place that helps them to sort through what they need to sort through. So I know people that are creative with sort with chainsaws, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know people who are creative in terms of how they move their body or in terms of how they approach challenges in their life, uh, in their life, um, that they wouldn't describe themselves as creative. I think so when we say that creativity can give us sort of a path through trauma, that doesn't necessarily mean painting, drawing, singing, writing. Um, it can mean any number of things. And, you know, yeah, we just have to sort of, I think it's all about searching. You know, we have to just keep searching for the ritual, the routine, the practice that taps into our innate creativity. And yeah, you might not be able to draw anything more than a stick figure like me, but you may be a creative gardener. Um, You may be a creative surfer. Um, You may be creative in terms of how you jump into action and help other people, you know? Uh, So I think when we find that creativity to tap into, whatever that looks like for us, without shaming ourselves for, you know, I I would say that I don't have a creative bone in, in my body when I define creativity in terms of pencil and paint. I really have no sort of hand-eye coordination in terms of expressing myself. I can type on a computer, and I know how to translate creativity through f-stop and aperture by using a camera. Um, So I'm extremely creative in some ways, and in other ways, I'm absolutely hopeless. Mm. Um, So... I feel like one of the most important things we can do is, yeah, so what if if you're not patchwork quilting or scrapbooking or really particularly into drawing or felting or knitting or anything else? In the same way that we need to keep searching for our body's outlet, and you may have just not found it yet, we also need to keep searching for our creative outlet, and you may have not found it yet. For you, that might be restoring an old car. You know, you may discover late in your life that you have mechanical creativity. We, the most important thing we do is we keep searching. And that gives us an escape, a channel, a pathway, so that when we're feeling overwhelmed by difficulty, by trauma or grief, we know that if we go out and dig in the dirt and even just weed and tend to our creativity, that that's what it looks like for us. And that's a positive thing. That's going to help us cope when we're feeling dark and overwhelmed. And you said, if I recall, you started blogging in NICU or before that. You were blogging before that. I was, yeah. I mean, I it's funny. There's a lot associated with the word blog that I don't like that it kind of turned into. It became a lot about sort of keywords to sell Swiffer wet jets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, so when I hear the word blogging, I sort of cringe a little bit and I, I maybe a part of it is snobbery, which, which isn't, um, doesn't really, uh, befit any of us, but I guess I just, it, it always felt like a letter to my family so that they would not call. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's weird. It was, it was a way when I had my first son, 
it was like having an open online journal so that people wouldn't just stop by because I really didn't want that. I wanted to be able to be walking around the house with my top down and (laughs) covered in mustard poop and being kind of a mess with piles of spitty laundry everywhere and this newborn baby. And I just did not want to be bothered. I wanted to know that I didn't have to be self-conscious. That's just me. I mean, other people would, would want nothing more than lots of company and the, and a busy house uh, when they have a new baby to kind of pass around. But I'm, I have a very introverted side to me. And so I thought, you know what, rather than having to repeat the latest news and pictures, I'll just put it online and I can share with my my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and my friends so that they can kind of, if they're interested, they can sort of follow along and see how Evan's growing. And, and so it was never done as, as a way of having a public audience. I, I didn't even know that blogging, for lack of a better word, was what it was. I, I didn't know that it had become and that it would very soon become um, sort of a, a public storytelling venue which eventually it it did become that for me um, in a small way. And then obviously I already had this online journal as I thought of it when, when the twins were born. And so that was one of my channels was it was a place to just put writing. And for me, writing was already deeply embedded in my, as a ritual for me in terms of helping me to, feel a sense of control when I had none. Um, And that goes way back even to when Evan was born and when Evan was a baby, because even if everything goes perfectly ordinarily, if you're blessed with an uneventful birth and an ordinary baby, which is like the greatest thing, that's, that's all you can hope for. It's still a profoundly humbling endeavor to be a mother for the first time, because you really don't know what you're doing. And that's okay. Um, you're really a mess, and that's okay. And you really have very, very little control. All of a sudden, your heart exists in this other tiny, highly vulnerable being. And you know that when they are 14, 15 years old, they might trip and fall, they might hurt themselves, they might break a bone, they might who knows? I mean, my goodness, our mind just starts churning in a way it never has before. And it's all about the love you feel and the lack of control that you have around that love. Mm -hmm. And so creativity helps us to have some little corner of our existence where we do have control. It's all about our skill and our effort you know, you can sort of control a garden, you can be creative in the kitchen. And, you know, if you add yeast to uh, flour and water, it will rise if you put it in a warm place. So I think a lot about what, what sort of fuels us and calms us when we're doing our creative practice, again, no matter how that manifests, whether it's in a garage with a wrench in our hands or in the kitchen stirring something or actually creating some form of art, it comes us because we are now in a place where we have some degree of proficiency that we can practice in order to exert control, control over a simmering pot, 
control over a canvas, control over a story, or an image, a song, whatever those things are. And that's why it helps us is because it sort of calms us. And so that's what writing was for me because I thought I need to try to process all the thoughts in my head. And the way that I do that is by choosing my mindset and choosing the way that I'm going to tell and internalize that story of what's happening. Um, Because writing for me is very much the act of creating the story as you go. When you are writing about yourself and your life as you're living it, which is what journaling is, we are literally framing and reframing our lives as they are unfolding. It's a very, very powerful thing to be doing because when we step outside ourselves, our own sort of very self-absorbed sort of take on what's happening to us, when we set that to the side in order to put on the role of, of, of being an author for ourselves, that really changes and and has the power to shift our read on things. Um, And I think that's why it was such a powerful thing that was such an instinct at three o'clock in the morning in the hospital after I woke up from the C-section was if I don't start telling this story and owning this story and reframing it, this disaster, this absolute terror of a catastrophe, then it is going to bury me alive. It is going to choose its own shape, and it is going to exert that shape onto me. And I won't have any control over uh, the tenor of that story, and it's going to change the tenor of me, and that scares me. So I'm going to take these reins right away, You know, even if I'm bumbling my way through, I'm going to show this story. No, 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 this is mine. You're you're not gonna just run rampant yourself like a bull in a china shop, like a like a horse, like an upset horse, imagining, you know, just a horse that is terrified running rampant and the damage it can cause. That is the catastrophe. I am going to break that horse with love and gently. I am going to teach that horse how to calm itself so that I can stay calm, so that I can stay focused on the love, um, even when I'm at my angriest, even when I'm at my most raw. And writing happened to be that thing for me. And you mentioned something about like it was already ingrained in you. And you mentioned your mom too, like working at the bookstore. I'm, I'm curious to know when it became such a, a natural instinct for you to like journal and write. And like, is it something basically when you were very young or? When I was six years old, I drew a picture that my mother saved. And that picture is now on my bulletin board in my studio. And it says, things I will be when I grow up. And I drew, I remember drawing it. I I divided the page into six, I was going to say six quadrants, six parts, whatever that would be, (laughs) not four, six. And and I said, I'm going to be a teenage girl. I was so enraptured 
by teenage girls. And this teenage girl was very cool and she had curly hair because that's all I wanted in the world and something I never was able to have. (laughs) And um, so I wanted to be a teenage girl and I also wanted to be a beach girl. This is a six-year-old's fantasy, right? I wanted to be have a tan and a bikini and to flop around enjoying the ocean with curly hair. That was number two. Number three was to be a professional roller skater. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm still I'm still holding out for that. And number four was and this is so interesting to me. The teenage girl, the beach girl, and the roller skater all had curly, fabulous hair. Mm. But number four was to be an author. And the author had straight hair, which is what I have. (laughs) So it's almost like all the other things were just sort of silly fantasies. But I I was six years old and I thought my thing is going to be writing. Now the other two squares are left blank, which I also kind of love. I love sort of wondering what else I might be. I turned 48 in July and I, I love feeling like maybe there's also one or two other things that I am that I haven't discovered yet. I didn't know when I was six years old that I would be a photographer as well. And I think that's probably number five and number six. I don't know. I think it's pretty interesting to think about. Um, but so when I when I drew that and I and my parents would sort of look at that and I would I would sort of say after that I think that that I was going to be an author. And my mom and dad's reaction was always all right then you better get started get to work and they would give me paper and a pencil and crayons and a stapler and I remember just constantly bringing stories to my mom that she would have to staple together and and, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, we went through a lot of staples. Um, that was almost the, the funnest part. But yeah, so so I always knew that I wanted to be an author, but I didn't know where the stories were going to come from. I thought, I know I want to write, but I don't know. I, I, I don't have any stories in me. Like I wouldn't even begin to know what to write. And I felt that way for a really long time. Um with the exception of being a voracious journaler. So I did always keep a journal um, that was um, prolific. And uh, especially when I was pissed off, ooh. <laughs> like writing was, writing was the vent. Writing was always the dialogue with myself that nobody ever saw, but that was sort of, I think we all have a best friend or a sister inside of us that is some, something we create ourselves. That's the person we're talking to when we're shouting by ourselves in the car, when we're driving, when we just need to talk to ourselves, that's the person we're talking to. Mm -hmm. And that's the person that I was writing to for a really long time. And so I was sort of practicing uh, holding my own story and and sort of actively processing for a really, really long time. Um, But then, you know, you have enough life experience, you do enough observation, which I think is, is very much uh, something that, that writers in particularly, or people who end up being writers, it's something that they do innately is to be very observant and to be a bit of a sponge in terms of soaking up 
places and characters, people. So I was kind of filling my bank up. That's the way I think of it for, honestly, for decades with places, experiences, moments that I would sort of file away until finally a story that wasn't my own story, a story that wasn't just (laughs) the equivalent of ranting by myself in the car came to me one day when I was walking in the woods with a six-year-old and he was, you know, he had wet mittens and wet feet and he was hungry and he was frustrated and we were hiking through the woods with his family and uh, I was kind of on my own with him. Uh, and this is when Evan was, I think, eight or nine months old and he was in a backpack uh, with his dad. And I was with um, this kid, Eric, and he was yanging on in the woods. He was, he was being pretty annoying. I mean, he's six years old. <laughs> That's what they can do sometimes. And he was just belly aching. And, and I, I, I just started making up this story. I said, shh, Eric, be quiet or they'll hear you. And he just stopped and he said, who will hear me? And so I started telling him the story of pirates in the woods and this ship that rumbles through the woods. And that eventually became my first novel. Um, And so so that's how I realized uh, that stories really can be like mushrooms sometimes. They just they they really sort of pop up organically um, on their own with no pattern at all. But once once you train yourself to recognize those sparky moments for what they are, then you start learning to chase them. You start learning to let them bloom and, and grow. And um, yeah, so that's, that's how I became a writer of more than just myself. I'm so excited to introduce Estelle Thompson. Yes, that's me. Online art and yoga studio, a place to engage, explore, transform, and most importantly, play to free your unique expression of soul. With the coupon Studio 20, try one month of studio features with 20% off. Again, that's Studio 20, S-T-U-D-I-O-2-0. You're welcome. Now back to our electrifying guests and conversation. I love the chase because I think once you've gotten a taste of it and how quick it comes to, like, it's like a flash, you know, and like you've been waiting like all your life for it. And it's like, no, like, it's like, yeah, this is it. Like, I love you mentioned the chase um, and I love uh, your list uh, and your parents. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have it? Oh yeah, yeah. I can. I'll send it to you. Oh, we have a, we have a scan of it. Yeah. And um, did you frame it? Yeah. Well, yeah. My 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 dad. Um, unfortunately, he. I forget the word for the what this is. Like he he had it sort of not laminated but pressed to a wooden board. So I don't really like. I would rather have it in a frame. Um, but we also have some really high quality scans of it um, to kind of preserve it because, of course, it's all. It looks like an antique. It's all yellowed and you know ripped around the edges and torn. And yeah, but we still we still have it. Oh, I love it so much because that's uh, <laughs> well. It made me think of two things. First, I kind of have a like similar story where I might have been old, a bit older than you, though. I was like thirteen or fourteen, and I was talking to a girlfriend on the phone, and I was just doodling 
like I was just talking to her yeah. and I was doodling on the like corner of the of the phone. And <laughs> like a few years later, maybe even my early 20s, anyway, for Christmas, my mom had freaking she had kept the corner of this like like dirty, like little paper I had doodled on it. And it was an E which and a star, which is how I signed my paintings today. Oh and, yeah. And but but below <laughs> below it said to be continued. <laughs> oh nice. Isn't that incredible? That is fantastic. Know. Yeah, we had the scan too, but she had it the same. Like she had it put on like a wooden board. Wow. When I know, and it's like it's as if you're young, it's like you know or something. Yeah, and- well we we were who we are. And that's why it's so interesting to watch a child grow, whether they're a nephew or a niece or a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter, when you watch them grow. And like now, when I look back at Ben, when he was two years old, I think, yeah, that was Ben. That is who he is. And Evan, you know, the same thing when he was four years old, six years old, seven years old, he was certainly another version, but I can absolutely see that, that that is exactly who he has grown into as a young man. And it's very cool when you think about it. Mm, it's so cool. And it's so simple. <laughs> like we make things so, uh, it's just so complicated when, when we get older. I don't know, maybe we have more responsibilities or this and that, but you know, it's it's so simple. Like one thing that I I haven't done in a while, but in some of my women's circles that I've run, like one of the first question I'll ask is like, what did you used to like playing at when you were like eight years old or and oh my God, it's it just gets so moving. Like what what the women say, they're like, I used to ride my bike. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. So like, so like, why aren't you riding your bike now? Yeah. Like, you need to go and get some padded shorts and a good bike that isn't, a, you know, a yard, yard sale throwaway. And you need to get back on that bike because you are a cyclist. You just forgot. You just forgot. And yeah, oh, the answers, some of the answers are the best. Like there's a few I'll always remember. One was like, I used to call my friend and I would say, want to go play? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, do you remember lip syncing, Kate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, do you know? Well, the funny thing, the funny thing. This, this is actually, I think you'll like this. Is when I was eight years old, we had a very old house in in Halifax, not far from Point Pleasant Park, and it had sort of Victorian closets that were tiny. But what I used to do is I used to go into the closet with my pencils and my paper. And probably at that point, a 70 or 80-year-old silk duvet that used to, that was paisley, that used to, it was an antique and it used to belong to, um, I think, my great-grandparents or something. And it had been sort of passed down and it was this beautiful, soft, silky, beautiful thing. And I used to make a nest in this closet, which was just broad enough for my shoulders, pretty much. 
And I used to bring in a little clip-on Ikea lamp, and I would clip the lamp to a shelf. And I would make this tiny little cave for myself with the duvet and the clip-on lamp and the paper and pens. And that's that was what I liked doing. I would go in there for hours, and I would write. And that was just, and I would, and so really, that's the best part of me now. And that's also kind of my undoing because I am so, I mean, I just, I'm such a sloth in that way. I really have to say, okay, Kate, get out of the closet, <laughs> get off, get away from the story for a little bit so that you can fill those lungs. But um, yeah, that's, that's what I was doing when I was eight. You're still there. You're still in that closet. I know. know. That's the funny thing. I'm actually telling that story from a closet. You know, having done these interviews for a while with so many women, like that's a subject that I must say, like comes back over and over again, like women that are really like they're in line with their calling and their their dharma, whether it be like artistic, you know, uh, ventures or, or not. Like they can always recall they were doing the same as kids, you know? That's what I was doing when I was like a kid. I just like, yeah. like I would love, one thing I, it's, it was like my favorite thing. I would put on shows for my parents and like it was the best when we had guests over, obviously, because my parents, you know, they were kind of, <laughs> they were kind of tired, but and I would, I would do dance shows and I would recruit my friends and I would, we would like have a, you know, a whole dance thing. And I would, and like, seriously, if I look at my Instagram account now, it's not much different. <laughs> yeah. You, you were who you are. Yes. I, and I love this. Yeah. That saying because it's really, and sometimes like I catch myself, like, I'm like, oh, why am I posting that? Like, is it like I want to show up or like, is it? And I, I think about that a lot with like yoga pictures with like, ah, oh, like this whole like glamorize. And then, and then I ca- and then I snap out of it and I'm like, I love this. Like I used to do this. Like, this is me, like 110% me. Like, I don't know why I, I don't want to hide that. Like, I don't want to have, like, I am 39 and I still feel like I'm like, you know, eight or nine years old. Like, I don't like, I think if anything, like that's, that's a gift that I still permit myself to do these things, like twirl around on a beach and, you know, and for you, like, you're still Mm -hmm. in that closet. Like, yeah, I am. That's incredible. Like I knew other women, like they, they were fixing their, their dolls and they were putting band-aids on their teddy bears and their nurses like you know yeah, like, that's right yeah it's a beautiful thing I just want to for whoever's listening like we're not just talking yeah. about like artistic like ventures um no no yeah no. you know if there's anyone out there listening to this who just feels like they've lost their light who feels just lost in general who feels tired or heavy I would say that would be a really beautiful thing to sit and reflect on and like make a list, like get a beautiful new journal and a beautiful pen and open it up to the first page and make a list of all the stuff that you used to adore, that you used to just love doing more than anything else. And use that as your North Star to start feeding yourself again, to start throwing open all the windows of the house that is you 
like the, is it the Swiss or the Swedes who do that? I think it's the Swiss. There's a beautiful word for it that even through the winter, all year long, there's a part of the day where they open all the windows of a house. doesn't matter how cold it is. And it's changing the air of the house. And, and I, there's, I wish I knew the word. It's, it's got to be a German word for a uh, Swiss German word for that practice of even if it's just for a couple of minutes, open all the windows. And it's just sort of key to health that you don't let the air around you be stale air. And I love that metaphor for taking care of ourselves. And I think when you're feeling heavy and dark and lethargic and lost, consider that you have just simply forgotten to open all the windows. You've, you've let the air around you go stale. And the way to open those windows is to tap into what you used to love, because there's a very, very good chance that translates into something that you can do right now, something that you've forgotten that you are. If you loved being in the garden when you were a kid, pulling weeds with your with your dad, then you need to get back in the dirt. That's very important to go and do that. If you loved plunking around on your on your mother's instruments, then you need to start playing music again. And I don't care how bad you think you are at it. You need to just start doing that again. Have a musical practice. Um, yeah. So I, I just really feel like we need to to remember those elemental things that we used to love to do. And that's how we change our air. Mm. Oh, yeah. I feel this so, so strongly. And I just want to kind of circle like back to, to grief and Mm -hmm. like, I would go and I'd love your thought on this, but I would go so far as to say, like, I've been able to, transcend so much of my pain, which will will always be part of me. Like I'm not immune to pain and suffering, mm-hmm. you know, as I still have many years to, to live. My creative practice, whatever it looks like on any given day, and I'm not just talking about, you know, painting, writing. Almost now I'm thinking about the physical and breathing, being outside nature, whatever, whatever. But it's really helped me yeah, just transcend the heaviness you were just talking about. Yeah. And I don't know, I've been for you. And I'm not sure if it's that for like everyone. The thing that that just got me thinking about is talking to my kids about math. Um, math in particular is for most people, with the exception of people who really are sort of numerical savants, um, <laughs> is it, it's not easy. It's a struggle. And the reason why unlike so many other subjects, is because if we don't stay on top of math, math is going to get on top of you. And it happens really fast. Um, So you just have to make sure that you don't start slipping in your understanding because math is a subject that is taught kind of in layers that build upon each other. And so if you're getting, getting weak on a layer and then another layer is piled on top, you're going to be absolutely underwater and really, really mixed up very quickly. So you need to, even if you think you're good, you need to stay on top of those practice sheets so that it doesn't get on top of you. And this just made me think of that when you asked this question, because I think once we find our balance, once we reconnect to the stuff that we're pretty sure feeds us, that 
the, these channels, these, these pathways uh, to help us cope with life, with disappointment, with stress, whether it's physical, creative, a little bit of both. Once we've defined for ourselves what that looks like, you're in a much better position when bad things happen to you because you you already have that language and that practice so that disappointment fear catastrophe doesn't drown you doesn't immediately get on top of you because you already have inroads to bolstering yourself and coping and finding a shape to what you know how you're going to show up when you have no control because you already have those avenues for yourself. And, and so I think, and maybe that's why when we get older, we get wiser. Maybe it's not so much wisdom in terms of uh, intellect, but maybe it's wisdom because as we age, we accumulate not only more disappointment and more pain, more suffering, which is what happens, but we also accumulate more expertise of the self. We accumulate more interests. We accumulate more hobbies, more stuff that that helps us uh, find our feet. Mm-hmm. And that maybe that is wisdom, is the ability to self-generate our own sense of purpose and direction and calm and mm-hmm. venting. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're older, you have more of those. Uh, when you're younger, you have fewer. So when you're younger, you might resort to drinking too much because you just have no other sort of um, accessible avenues to help balance you. Or you might start eating in an unhealthy, habitual way or any number of other sort of self-medicating things to try to cope because you don't have enough modes of modes of expression, modes of escape, modes of modes of coping when the control is not there. Yeah. And that's why too, I ask you, like, like, I feel the preventative aspect of it, like almost, almost, and I I don't want to say like to do it before tragedy hits, but almost like it really does help. Like, I remember thinking like, oh my God, like, I think I would want to kill myself if I didn't have my yoga mat, if I didn't have my paintings. Um, and I don't mean to be like dramatic, but that's really, that was really that. It was really, really that. I was like, I don't, I, I get it why you would want to kill yourself if you didn't have that, you know, like, and to keep coming back, I think to what you love. I know in a way, like, I kind of find why that, what I lost in what I love. <laughs> Like it's almost I I get to commune with with that which feels whole, but that's my experience. I I don't know. I mean, if you hadn't have had yoga, if you hadn't have had art, well, first of all, you would have been a different person. So yeah, it's it's really it's really hard to to speak in that kind of hypothetical. But you, I think people who don't have either of those things sorted—the physical, the creative. Um, I think it's not necessarily that, I guess what I'm saying is I think 
as much as the despair would bring you to dark places, I think most of us find our way. Mm. It's just, if you don't have those channels already, it's hard. It's harder because you're, you're not certain in who you are. You're not certain in, in what your body needs. You're not able to recognize symptoms before they overwhelm you in terms of, I need some fresh air. I need to move. I need to create something. I need to grow something. And that will make me feel better. You just don't know. You don't have the ability to read your own signals. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it harder, certainly. Um, But I think if we can engage this ridiculous hypothetical of Estelle not having art or yoga, you would still have the child who came first. And at the very least, all of us have something in our lives that needs our care. Mm. And, you know, I remember watching um, Ricky Gervais had a beautiful uh, series called Afterlife that is, I think it's two seasons. I, I much prefer the first season. I feel like it almost should have stopped there. But, but it's about a man whose wife dies of cancer and they didn't have any kids. And it's basically about him being at the point where, I don't know if he was necessarily suicidal, but he certainly was at a breaking point where I think the whole premise of the show is that he just doesn't care about life anymore. And so he actually becomes kind of an asshole (laughs) because he starts transmitting that to other people. Mm. And he, oh, I do remember now, he, he he is suicidal as well. But the one thing that keeps him from really sinking deep into a, you know, into a, an, a, an unrecoverable place is that he loves his dog. Mm. He has this dog that has to be walked every day. He has this dog that if he, if he kills himself, the dog isn't going to get fed for mm. who knows how long. And so I really think there's always something that is going to pull us back from that brink. There's always some form of, you got to get up, because if you don't get up and do that thing, you, you know, your, your dog needs your love, your garden needs your love, your mother and your father need your love. There's always things that need you to tend to them. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, I, maybe I'm an optimist that I think about people who would call themselves not creative, people who would call themselves not physical at all, can't stand exercise. Maybe they live a long way away from the woods. I can totally relate to those um, feelings. You know, we've got to think about that right now. There could be someone listening to this who lives in a high-rise apartment in downtown Toronto (laughs) who who would say, I don't have a creative bone in my body. Mm -hmm. What about them? How, how do they find those outlets? And the thing is, is they do, they will. Um, but like all of us, I mean, no matter what our context is, we just have to not give up searching mm. because there is always life that needs to be tended to. And sometimes when you're at your lowest, that is what saves you. It's not the sort of grandiose inspiration. It's not the beautiful practice or the athletic ability. It's the small things that if you don't do them, they won't get done. And there's a certain mind, a certain 
type of person <laughs> that they're sort of compulsive enough about the things that they do that that's what keeps them afloat. And we all have those things, those that sense of responsibility and that sense of, you know, yes, I'm suicidal, but I don't want to be that dickhead that actually goes through with it, for God's sake. Mm. You know, I don't, I'm just not willing to, to, uh, to let that happen, you know, and that's, and that's their starting point to start climbing up and out. Um, I, I, I hope that I'm not saying anything insensitive when I, when I say that I'm kind of shooting from the hip here because I've known people that, that would call themselves suicidal and, and, um, and I have mixed, mixed emotions about that because too often suicide becomes a weapon, becomes something that is abusive to people around you as well as to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that makes me very, very, um, I have a sort of a, a very low tolerance for it. Um, and that's where the Scotch Protestant grandmother in me kind of kicks mm-hmm. in again to say now smarten up and start start realizing what this way of thinking how manipulative it is to everyone around you and you're manipulating yourself and you have just gotten buried in self-absorption and you need to like you're at an emergency point now in terms of buying that journal cracking it to the first page and remembering who you are remembering who you were when you were untroubled and when you were brand new and tapping into again who that person is inside you and you're just at that emergency point so i hope i hope i didn't i'm i'm feeling um like i'm speaking harshly so i i hope i hope it doesn't come across that way because it is you know harshness can be loving and love can be harsh you know but these are things that are really really important as i'm listening to you it's uh your words are full of compassion and it, it uh i feel our conversation really sums it up when you said we were who we are and yeah. it's it's kind of really you know about that um there's Ah, oh, so much golden nuggets in what we've just talked about. Ah, oh, this is so rich. I wish uh, <laughs> I could like take you with me every week. <laughs> um, and I love, I love, this is meant like our conversation. And I said this at part one, it was really meant to be stream of consciousness and, and stream of consciousness is no script, right? So whatever yeah. it goes, it goes and we're here not to judge it and to just... Yeah, just welcome it. Um, so I want to thank you. And the, I guess the last question I want to ask you, Kate, um, as we're about to just wrap up our three-part conversation, your like your book and you know your story, a field guide to grief. If it were to have like a shape. <laughs> Do you know, would it have a certain shape? Like, would it be the shape of, I don't know, a spiral or a cycle or um, uh, a circle or like, for example, I think of my documentary and my writing, like it's really the shape of a butterfly, like, and it's kind of like the transformation of it. A tin can telephone, (laughs) you know, it's it it doesn't the only the only shape it has is of me speaking into a tin can 
and a string and hoping that that someone who needs me will pick up the other end. And then it becomes a straight line. That's it. It becomes a straight line between two people, between someone who's on another side, if there is such a thing as a before and after. And, and I, you know, early on in my loss, I would have said, screw you. There is no before or after. This is me now. Um, but now that I have had, you know, almost 14 years, there is a before and after. Because all of the edges of that pain eventually soften and integrate. And the shape of, of my work in this sense is just that straight line that is searching for another person who needs to hear that. And so it's just a straight line. It's just, it's just a way of saying, um, you know, the reason why you need to understand that what's happening to you right now, the way you feel right now, that isn't you. It's just this thing that happened to you has just momentarily gotten on top of you. That's all. It's not you. It's just that that thing has buried you for the time being. But that doesn't define you. That doesn't, that doesn't set the rest of your life at all. You just need to understand and try to separate the feelings from the definition of who you are. Because you are so much more than just those feelings that you're having on this particular day, in this particular context, in this particular loss. It's just gotten on top of you. And I think, you know, that's, that's what I hope is that the shape of Notes for the Everlost is just that straight line that I hope will resonate not just to people who have held a, a child, an infant, as he died, like I did, and, and like you did, but that resonates to people recently robbed of their mother or their wife or a brother, um, that there will be something in the springboard of what happened to me that feels like a lifeline for you. And, and, and maybe that's overstating it. Maybe what I mean by lifeline is just you feel a little tug on the end of that rope when, when you're feeling lost and buried and overwhelmed that says, yeah, I was too. And, and on some days I still am. But it's not every day. And it's not me. That's not the whole of me. And when you feel that little tug on that straight line, on that piece of string, you know that there are other people out here who are very, very familiar with those feelings and who share them with you. And sometimes that's enough to just make you go, okay, all right. So here I am feeling these feelings and I don't know what to do to think my way through them. So I think what I need to do today is just open all the windows. Mm. And if I can just get you to just open some of those windows and just keep trying and try again tomorrow, then that's a straight line that, that I feel really good to have created. 
Well, I'm holding a tin can right now, and I'm really- <laughs> <laughs> mumble, mumble, murfle, murfle. <laughs> okay, you're welcome here on the show whenever you want. You're like a VIP guest. Yeah. Oh, it was such a delight, and I'm I'm so keen to kind of, you know, I I hope this is interesting for the people listening. I hope it hasn't been too uh, too much of anything. Um, I hope it's been useful and and I'm I'm sort of keen to continue a conversation on anything at all. I will talk with you from my closet anytime. Such a delight. Yeah, such a delight. And I, you know, in my point of view, like nothing is ever too much. And if we feel it's too much is that they they have that much more place in (laughs) (laughs) that's right. To be to be heard. Um so please do get Kate's book and we can find you on Instagram, yes? Well, yeah, probably the easiest thing to do is just go to kateinglis.com and all of my social links are there. So Instagram and Twitter, which I have different feelings about and Facebook, which I also have different feelings about. But nevertheless, I'm there. I can't wait to connect with you more. And I love you so much. I love you too, Estelle. Okay, bye. All right, bye. This podcast was produced by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub Productions. Find her online at podcasthub.ca.